This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Welcome to Talking Point. Coming up, opinion is divided this morning. We're talking about Brexit. Is it the beginning of the end or will everyone calm down because carrying on is the imperative? In studio, Cormac Lucy and Kevin Myers are columnists with the Sunday Times. Gavin Barrett is Professor of Law at UCD and Conor Lenehan, who needs no description really, but for the sake of completeness, is a former Fianna Fáil TD and Minister and currently up to something mysterious on Lambay Island. But you can tell us about that another time. Um, I'm going to start off by asking each of you just quickly what you think about the result Kevin Myers will you go first is it a disaster or will everything be okay it's not a disaster things will be okay but it's been a very poisonous a very poisonous referendum and it's what happens when you have a referendum on existential issues that are of major importance we saw the same thing in, in the 1980s with the referendums on divorce and, and abortion they're filthy affairs and this was a filthy affair w- w- in which both sides misrepresented the other but the fact is free trade will remain in Europe this is not the end of the world, goods and services will still be exchanged between the various countries within what was the European Union and remains the European Union because the European Union did not end this weekend. It remains in existence legally. Cormac Lucy. Well, I think it's probably the right decision for Britain uh, narrowly, but I think it's going to create some problems for us, but those problems will be manageable. Okay. If people keep a, a, a clear head, because in economic terms, we have uh, mutually assured destruction. You know, both sides can get thick and hurt trade and hurt the economy, or both sides can regard this uh, amicably and try to settle this in a friendly term. And I think today's comments from uh, Juncker that this would not be an amicable divorce, that's exactly what's not needed. Mm. Gavin Barrett. Um, I think it is um, a bad day. I think it's bad for the world. I think it's bad uh, for for Europe. I think it gives um, strength to the Geert Welders and the Marine Le Pens of the world. Uh, For the United Kingdom, I think it is a bad decision. Politically, they are reducing themselves to a backwater in Europe. uh, And we'll have to see what the economic effects of it are. There is no guarantee that they will remain um, in the single European market. But hopefully, um, I was watching Dominic Hannan speaking last night, so hopefully they will be prepared to accept um, an arrangement similar to the European economic area. If that happens, at least the economic consequences of it can be uh, can be minimalised. But overall, a very, very bad day for Europe, for the United Kingdom and for Ireland. Conor Lenehan. Well, I think, first of all, it shouldn't be a moment of panic. I, I think the b- bottom line is that Britain hasn't been entirely uh, a full playing as opposed to a pavilion member of the European Union Club of Nations for quite some time. Uh, there has been a significant degree of scepticism. And I think the English people and the British people in general have decided this is, this is you know, it's gone far enough for them and they've decided to go it alone. Uh, It's not as disastrous as people would like to present it. Uh, The European project, in my view, has strengthened considerably in the last few years. The actual creation of the currency itself has created an inner core of of hard-minded people who want to pursue and push the European project at a pace that, you know, is commensurate with the wishes of the various constituent parts. So I I don't see it as as a huge crisis, but I do think it will force a a very deep-seated reform of the European European institutions, not in a short term period, but in a short to medium canvas, because there are too many big things happening in Europe 
to allow this project to fail. You can't have uncontrolled migration running left, right, all over uh, the European Union member states. And you do have a very significant currency. It's had its difficulties, but it can't be destabilised because the consequences of a breakup of the European Union and indeed the currency that's at its core is potentially miserisation and, 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 and very bad economic results for a lot of millions of people. So Connor, it's, Kevin wasn't, Myers. There wasn't anything commensurate with the wishes of the people about the way the European project has been pursued. It's been rammed down people's throats. If we rejected um, the the Lisbon Treaty or Nice, we were told to go back and re-ratify it. Now, we have, we've just already heard from Cormac, the the, uh, Juncker's remarks. We have an elite, a self-appointed elite in Europe, which the ordinary people of Europe in every country have come to detest. We have a, 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 a currency which has brought us to the point of penury and ruin and has actually brought Greece beyond that point of penury and ruin. And this is the creation of ideologists. Now, there's nobody in this studio doesn't want harmonious relations between the various European countries, but it must be done with the assent of the electorates of Europe and not at the dictates of, of the ideologically driven elite. And they have been in charge now for two decades or more. And the, the result has been ruin to the Mediterranean countries, ruin to us, and now a British departure from the European Union. If, if those aren't wake-up calls, then nothing is. And you, you said you have to control migration. That's precisely the point on which the British left. But Kevin, would you not recognise that for most of the history of our membership, we did very, very well and far from bringing us penury and ruin... It, it brought us to Absolutely. economic success. Yeah, and that's when, when it had moderate goals, it, it was a successful union. When it became a political, ideological union and a currency union, disaster came into view. And not just disaster for us, but for the Mediterranean countries and also for France. Gavin Barrett. Yeah, I, I, I agree with um, some of what Connor had to say there. I think one factor needs to be borne in mind as well, and that is that as important as the United Kingdom is, uh, it's not um, uh, an absolutely core member, if you like, of the European Union. And what I mean by that is that if France or Germany leave the European Union, the project is dead. It's finished because it's actually based on Franco-German reconciliation, uh, uh, you know, which is, if you like, the, the, the converse of, of the Franco-Prussian War, the First World War, the Second World War. Those nations were key to the beginnings of those uh, those, those conflicts. So um, um, the departure of of Britain is very, very serious, but it's a survivable blow. Now, I gave you all for your homework an essay by Brendan Sims from The New (laughs) Statesman um, last year in which he was talking about how federations can break up. And Mm. he was referring to Austria-Hungary, Yugoslavia and the USSR. And one of the points he made was, you know, the federation can stomach one member leaving. Mm. But if the second member leaves, then suddenly there's an acceleration. Now, if Britain gets a reasonable deal with the EU on trade, that might make it more attractive for somebody else to want to leave. And can you see complete breakup being a possibility? A complete breakup is always a possibility. Um, the European Union, though, is different from previous um, uh, entities like Yugoslavia in the sense that it wasn't created uh, by conflict. Um, all of the nations entered uh, in, into it as democratically, um, as, as democratic countries. Many of them, like Ireland, um, have had referendums uh, in, in relation to it, or at least Ireland has had constantly referendums yeah. in relation to it. So a lot of democratic legitimacy from Ireland um, in relation to this. So I don't see... Yeah, there are certainly parallels. There are grave dangers. And I think in the forthcoming negotiations, 
lines. I think a difficult line is going to have to be uh, trod by the European Union because on the one hand, they don't want to reward Britain for having voted to leave and they have to be very careful not to give a shot in the arms to the, the Gert Wilders and, and the Marine Le Pens of the world. Um, on the other hand, uh, they all have, uh, and Ireland most of all, uh, has massive trading um, relations with the United Kingdom uh, and it's important, uh, if you like, that those be maintained for all our sakes. So if you like, a difficult line to tread in balancing those two. And um, Cormac Lucy, John Bruton used to always make that point that, and that Gavin has just made, that it was the first voluntary federation, that normally with these federations they were formed by war and somebody was simply invaded and taken over and that's how you got in. But, you know, Kevin's point that a lot of it was done without the express input of the people and at times a very explicit agenda not to involve the people because they didn't know what was good for them. And that could be the downfall of the whole thing once people start getting their say. I think it's a, it's a point people raise as a criticism. But I think fundamentally what matters is whether the EU makes our lives better or makes our lives worse. It was the Chinese communist leader, Deng Xiaoping, who said, I don't care whether the cat is white or black as long as it catches mice. And the EU, by unreflectively taking on ever greater zones of competence, currency, migration, foreign policy, has made things worse. I'm not against the EU. I just wish the EU would dial it back, maybe to where we were in the mid-1990s. But since it's gone beyond being what Kevin referred to, you know, as a harmonious relations between countries with free trade, since it's gone substantially beyond that, every time it has done that, it has made things worse. That's my number one gripe with the EU. And my number two gripe is the people running the EU appear not to reflect on those failures. Their reaction to failure is, we need yet more integration. Is it possible to dial it back? I think it is. But I think it would need a mind change at the top. And I think David Cameron's winning of the concession from the EU in his negotiations before the referendum to get Britain an opt-out from ever closer union, I think that is something that Enda Kenny should have sought to get for Ireland also. I think if we are always on this one-way track to ever greater integration, that gives people a mandate to busybody us around. And if, on the other hand, we simply say, this is a community of interests, where it is in our interests to pool our activities, we'll do it. Where it isn't, we won't. I think that would be a far more sensible way to proceed. Right, but Kevin Myers, Brendan Sims made a point in that essay that yeah. uh, one of the first phases of the breakup of a federation is where uh, the centre begins to give concessions to the periphery because they see, well, maybe if we loosen things up, it might make it a bit easier. But all that does is encourage the periphery to seek even more concessions. Yeah, I mean, the, the essay was interesting, but it was uh, an essay about the downfall of, of empires. And we haven't yet had um, any experience that I can think of where you've got nation states voluntarily coming together to surrender sovereignty in a, in a common pool and agreeing on common values and then finding that um, it's the, 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 the common pool is being misdirected from the centre and people have begun to succeed. We haven't seen this before. So there aren't any analogies. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing that Britain should, or the United Kingdom, has taken, or rather England, ultimately, mm -hmm. has taken this decision to, to leave. And it, it's been a fascinating insight into how the metropolitan elite, the London politicians and the London media, completely failed to understand how working class people in England felt. They felt disenfranchised. Wisbeach, for example, 
was a very good report on television yesterday. 40% of the population of Wisbech, is a small market town, is now Central European. And what the people, in 10 years, 40%. And what the people of Britain were being told is this will continue indefinitely. This is not, you're not voting to approve of what exists now. You are voting for indefinite immigration forever, generationally. And therefore, your country will be transformed beyond all recognition. Now, London didn't, didn't mind that. London was already cosmopolitan. London was enormously prosperous because, because of immigration. And there are many downsides to that. But nonetheless, it did, it did do well. But most of Britain didn't feel it was doing well. Take any Irish town. Transfer that Irish town or translate that Irish town from zero uh, foreign percentage to 40% in 10 years. Tell that Irish town that's the way it's going to be indefinitely. What will the indigenous Irish population of that town say to such a proposition? They will say no. And that's what the people of England said. They said, we do not like our towns and our cities being transformed beyond recognition. And that's a sensible, sane, intelligent response. Now, so, Conor Lenehan, that view has been characterised amongst the intelligentsia um, Actually, I'll quote Brian Lucy this morning. He uh, tweeted that this was moronic xenophobia. And yet I can understand if you are working class and you're being forced to compete uh, with immigrants who are suppressing wages, that a vote out of the EU is voting in your economic self-interest, or at least it might appear to be so. Do you think is it simple xenophobia? No, I don't think that at all. I think there's a historical context here where, as I said earlier on, where Britain, uh, for instance, one of the most uh, important non-decisions that the British made was that Tony Blair tried uh, to get Britain into the Eurozone. Uh, And obviously there was a power struggle going on between himself and Gordon Brown, and that didn't happen. But he at that stage realised that if Britain was to continue to be a member of the European Union, it had to play at the top table. And the top table is the Eurozone inner club of countries, including Ireland. But this is the conceit of politicians. I'm just saying, that was Tony Blair's view. And I think the British people felt a very significant loss of power and and relationship to Europe because precisely because they didn't join the Eurozone currency, they then were actually, to a large extent in decision making, more marginal than they'd previously had been. I'm I'm not making a political point in saying this, I'm just making an historical point. And just to kind of illustrate even further, it it, it is wrong to suggest that this uh, rejection of the European Union and exit from the European by British people is a a white, you know, Anglo-Saxon rejection uh, of immigration because actually you know I, just a small point but uh, last week I had the good fortune to be invited to Ascot and, and you know the people there weren't typically of what some people would describe as you know the white English types who, who, who have issues concerns or nervosa uh, or xenophobic feelings uh, about migrants they were a well-to-do bunch of people and many of them were very concerned and were to my surprise to a certain extent you would associate some of them with the British establishment and establishment mindset uh, and they were very much uh, of the view that, that Europe had gone far enough as far as Britain was concerned so I think in fairness to, to depict it as xenophobic is very very wrong and, and to do it injustice to 
if you like, the maturity of the British people in deciding their own destiny. And they decided very clearly, and I think what Kevin said is very, very, very true here. It's very much about England because English nationalism has been sublimated in its own union, the United Kingdom, involving Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales. And they often feel at the core of, of this union is, is of course, England. And the English people feel their identity has, to a certain extent, been eclipsed, yes, to a certain extent, by uh, migration, but also by Europe. And also but, but this by... Talk, this by talk of, of politicians, of, of Britain being at the top table, that, that's the sort of talk that worries me as a citizen. I don't see that our ministers should be striving to boost their own personal positions and their own egos by being at the top table. I don't see how the citizens of Switzerland, Norway, Iceland have lost out dramatically as a result of their countries not being at this alleged top table. And I think what we saw in Britain needs to be seen in a wider context beyond the EU. And here I'm going to come slightly to the defence of the EU. There is a revolt by mainly white male, uh, less well-off people against globalisation. And we see this with Donald Trump. We see it with Hillary. Hillary, On on paper, Hillary Clinton should have walked her way to the Democratic nomination. She has had to struggle her way to it. And she is associated with globalisation. So there's a a wider, deeper concern across the developed world that uh, the fruits of globalisation have not been spread equally and that a big chunk of people have lost out. And do you see that as perception or reality? It's both. Yeah, I, 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 I do agree with Cormac on this point. I think it's very important people understand this, that there is a phenomenon across the whole developed world of uh, antipathy to globalisation and its consequences for ordinary people in communities. But there's also a, a problem with the political class. The political class, particularly in the European Union, have been, to a certain extent, blaming Europe for adverse results, but also at the same time not informing their public when a very significant transfer of sovereignty or pooling of sovereignty is pushed to the higher level. Uh, and so, therefore, the voter gets very frustrated. They look at a government and say, they're meant to be ruling us, but in fact, when the, the uh, perception grows that the big decisions are actually made in Brussels, are actually made by the, you know the UN or by the WTO, are these supranational bodies, whether it's Davos gatherings or others, and this is a real source of frustration to people in in an orderly democratic setting. They feel that their vote doesn't translate into a result uh, at the national level, and I think profoundly one of the issues that the European Union has to now look at is much more. I would say, decentralising and pushing decisions back to the nation state, local, regional level. That this is very, very important here because, in fact, we are going through an era now because of globalisation and technology where, in fact, the, the paradigm of nation state governance is not a particularly good one, actually, because actually a lot of the decisions are actually made at a supranational level. Mm. So therefore, one has to restructure accordingly. And, I, you know, I am a fan, but by Gavin, the way, of the Swiss system where you have a threefold division between the local canton, the but region Gavin and Barrett, the Gavin Barrett, I want you to address that issue of globalisation and its impact on the white working <coughs> class. White working class mainly could even go on. Mm. So there is a sneering by the elite that, you know, the British have done the wrong thing. But... There is a genuine sense of grievance in developed countries and they're being ignored by the elite. And that's when you get Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. That's the result. Yes, I I think there is very much a sense that the referendum uh, in Britain, uh, uh, in in that referendum, that the European Union almost became a proxy for for the the, the kind of of things that people who vote for Donald Trump are voting against uh, as as, as well. So there there is that. I'm not quite sure what the answer to that is, because as as Connor has, has, has mentioned, the solutions to a lot of things are no longer found at nation state level. 
Um, uh, you know, if you look at the recent uh, currency crisis, uh, the solutions for that in part were found by cooperation between the Fed, the European Central Bank, the big beasts, if you like. Uh, and you need those in order to, to, to control the massive forces of globalisation. Um, I'd like to touch back also on something that Connor said there um, uh, a little uh, while ago, or I think Bergen Cormac said a little about the, the European Union being a free trade agreement. The European Union was never a free trade agreement. We should understand that was never the case. If you look back to the founding document um, of the, the predecessor, predecessor organisation of the European Union, which was called the European Coal and Steel uh, Community, that began with a document called the Schuman Declaration. And if you look at, at the, the Schuman Declaration, that wasn't about coal and steel or commerce or trade. Um, it actually said, you know, Europe wasn't united and therefore we had war. And we're now setting about building the first steps of a European federation. And if you like, the European Union has always been a bet uh, that federal solutions are going to work better in the long term than non-federal ones. Uh, and at the end of the day, um, that, um, uh, that, that cooperating together with a real transfer of power to European level. And of course, yes, it has to be adequately de- democratically answerable. But the solutions for Europe are going to be found in a move like that. And what we've seen, uh, uh, and this includes the reaction uh, of the European politicians to the Brexit vote, is entirely consonant uh, with, uh, with that uh, reality. Europe has never been viewed, particularly by France and Germany, whom you've got to remember lost millions of their citizens uh, in, in, in avoidable wars. Um, uh, it has never just been about free trade and the solutions are not just in free trade. But you can go well, back can, further Kevin, than that to World War One. I'll let Kevin Myers yeah. in and then well, you can the Peace in Europe has not been brought about by the European Union. It's been brought it about. It, it's been brought about by NATO. No, that, no, that's, 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 that's I didn't cut across you. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's been brought about by NATO. Now it's nice to have this. Um, what you say it's not a free trade area. I would say emphatically it was a free trade area. But there are other documents involved, and other legal bases for the, you know the coal and steel. But what brought peace to Europe was American presence. American subventions into all of the economies in Europe, the American military presence, that is what guaranteed peace in Europe. It wasn't by the ability or by the skills of Europe. In fact, Europe walked away and continues to walk away from its military responsibility to defend itself. We've left that duty, and this includes Ireland, to the Americans. It's been a major act of, uh, of state delinquency in the broader European sense for Can this to have that? happened. But would Can you I answer that? Yes, yeah, do okay. yeah, like, go oh, ahead. Okay, the, the role of NATO in Europe uh, has not been maintaining peace between European nations. The role of NATO in Europe was maintaining peace between the East and the West, the Soviet bloc uh, and the United and, and the United States uh, and its allies. So yes, of course, we have to be grateful for NATO uh, for, if you like, defending um, uh, Western democracy against communism. Uh, but that's not what the peace that's involved in the European Union uh, is about. It's fundamentally about replacing um, a relationships of political rivalry and economic r- rivalry, which could in turn lead and did lead to military rival within Europe. Yes, with an ongoing process. But, but, and Kevin or Cormac, yeah. but, but when Europe uh, had the opportunity to do something to promote peace, when the Bosnian crisis mm-hmm. blew up, and the then chairman of the European Council of Ministers, uh, a Luxembourg foreign minister with the unfortunate name of Jacques Poux said, <laughs> now is not the hour of America, now is the hour of Europe. That's what he said. And Europe stood by, That's right. all documented in a book written by Brendan yes. Sims. Europe stood by as tens of thousands of people were butchered. And in the end, it was the United States Air Force that changed things around. Yeah, that book was called On Finest Hour. And, and yeah, it, it, it's another example of, of, of Europe overreaching itself, of Europe's ambition not being matched by capacity. Mentally and overreaching itself, but not militarily. I was there. 
I mean, I was there in Bosnia. We knew on the ground that nothing, it wasn't going to be the Germans or the Brits or the French who were going to come to the rescue of Bosnia. It, it was the Americans. We, everyone there who was new, I mean, there's, there's, anyone who was in that, re that area at that time felt profound contempt for the European Union because the Germans had had such an activating role in precipitating the Bosnian stroke Yugoslavian civil war. I mean, having helped precipitate it with the re recognition of Croatia, then stepped back. So the European Union ha had a major motivating factor in the disintegration of, of Yugoslavia. And the, the, the people who brought peace to Europe in, 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 in Bosnia were the same people who brought peace to Europe in 1945, the United States of America. And on that note, I'll take a quick break, Gavin. Hold your thought. We'll be straight back to you after these messages. <laughs> Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about Brexit this morning and in studio, Cormac Lucy and Kevin Myers, agents for Rupert Murdoch, as they are columnists with the Sunday Times. What line did the Times take on Brexit? Pro, or did they have pro, a line? Yeah. Were they pro? pro no, pro-exit. Pro oh, pro-exit. Yeah. yeah, that would be in keeping. Uh, Gavin Barrett is Professor of Law at UCD and Connor Lenehan is a former Fianna Fáil TD and Minister. I'll read a few of your many texts that are coming in. Uh, Mark says it's a positive day and I hope we follow and leave. Another texter says what about British expats living in Europe such as France? Will they be told to go home? There's also the issue of holidays to France and wider Europe so beloved of the English have they any idea how this is going to pan out? Well one of the problems will be their uh, European health insurance cards which I had occasion to use recently where they can get uh, free healthcare when they're abroad but we'll see how that's all negotiated. Deirdre and Cork says what's going to happen to Calais? Apparently it's just going to move to Kent because the French are going to say we're <laughs> not policing your borders for you so they'll all just walk through the tunnel uh, Kieran in Fermoy says is it fair that Irish budgets are passed around the German parliament before the Irish see it enough is enough fair play to the Brits uh, someone else says if the vote had been confined to British passport holders the end result would have been truer whereas many are now left wondering how many of the votes were non-British well there's more identity who is British and who isn't which we'll be talking about in a minute and Sean in East Donegal says by voting to leave the EU the English have hastened the breakup of the United United Kingdom. That indeed could be one of the yeah, outcomes. Yep. So there are more and I'll try and get to those. But Gavin was dying to get in on a point just before the break and I hope he remembers what it was. I do. Yeah, no, it was just about the, the European responsibility for the Yugoslav crisis. What we have to remember um, is that uh, Europe is a soft power. It's not a military power. Like the, the amount of, of income that the United States put into their military is vast compared to the, the average amount that's put in uh, by, by Europe, which has chosen, by the way, militarily to cooperate within the context of NATO, not within the context yet, although it's changing gradually. Uh, in the context of the European Union. So it was interesting to, to, uh, to hear Cormac uh, actually criticise uh, um, uh, the European Union for not having had capacity um, in the uh, uh, of in, overreaching in the field itself. Of overreaching itself. Um, in other words, it, it didn't have enough capacity in that field because a couple of minutes ago he was criticising the European Union for, for having too much capacity in the field of monetary union and, and migration. So Connor you can't have it both ways. Conor I think this issue of capacity is a very serious one. I'm not trying to enter into the discussion, ver uh, you know, one versus the other, but it, it was very brought home to me very vividly when I was Minister for Development Day at the time of the Pakistan earthquake that people looked around the world at a horrific scene where people were dying on the mountain in the very freezing cold conditions after the earthquake and the only power in on the planet that could 
bring about a situation of heli, heavy lift helicopters to bring relief to those people was the United States of America. And the same happened with regard to the tsunami. Uh, the European and other powers other than the United States couldn't actually effectively intervene in very remote areas where heavy lift capacity was required. So this is a very significant issue for Europe. If Europe has, we call it big power, federal ambitions, it does have to look at justice, security, frontier uh, patrolling and guarding. And it does have to look at military uh, capacity. And there is no military capacity within Europe. It is outsourced to NATO. And I think it would be desirable, like probably would have never have said this when I was in my 14 years in the Dáil and as a minister as well, that we do need to look at the potential for f- building defence or military structures within the European Union command and control because there is a border to protect and we've seen how that border can be jeopardised or broken up because of migration and conflicts beyond uh, European's frontier. So I think this is something that has going to have to be looked at very, very carefully. <coughs> I'm in the going future. to do a couple of uh, texts. Um, uh, one, this one is for Kevin. Surprised and delighted to hear Kevin Myers back on national radio, the voice of experience. More of this, please, says Philip in Kildare. You don't Thank have you, a, a brother or cousin called Philip or anything mm. like that. <laughs> and uh, so are Myers and Lucy calling for an EU army now. The problem with some who criticise the EU is their solution is a federal one. It's a paradox, which indeed it is. And the British were looking up the track and they see a train coming down with 90 million Turks on it. And Kevin, I want to go to you <coughs> on that, going back to this issue of migration, um, which for the people seems to be the real uh, touchstone issue. And um, I'm probably putting on my conspiracy hat far too early in the weekend. But I do think it's interesting that Peter Sutherland is the special raconteur for migration for the United Nations, because some people might argue that um, migration is, um, you know, the neoliberal conspiracy to keep down conditions and wages for the poor. Well, that's actually the, that's the been the net effect yeah. of mass, mass migration. Now, I think people who live at the level of Peter Sutherland does, I don't know how many houses he has, and people like Bob Geldof, should really keep their mouths a little bit zipped when it talks about the the consequence of mass emigration, because it's not going to be felt where they live. It will be felt in in, in working class housing estates outside Huddersfield or Dublin or or or, or Manchester, or the sorts of places that voted no in England. It's a very grave issue because immigration, because it creates an irreversible situation in a country, and it's you know we we know this that that we were talking just before I came on air that you know I was born in Leicester. Uh, in my lifetime, Leicester has been transformed from a 100% um, white Anglo-Saxon stroke, Irish stroke, Polish uh, city to being 55% Asian, Afro-Caribbean. And that's an ir- ir- irreversible fact of life. And it's, it's, it's transformed Leicester. In many ways, transformed Leicester for the better. No one's going to deny that. But there are many downsides to this. Now, if you are going to transform communities across Europe, you have to consult the existing communities before you do so. You cannot impose change from the top on ideological principles. And that is precisely what Europe has done. It's embraced this notion that the free movement of peoples is a core value like the free movement of goods. And it's not a core value. And no society ever, ever, Uh, has taken itself and said, we will admit any numbers of people who want to come here. This has never happened before. Gavin Barrett. 
Um, yeah, just a, a couple of points in relation to that. Firstly, um, the United Kingdom uh, has control over one uh, aspect of migration, and that is non-European Union migration. There was absolutely nothing to do uh, to, to stop them, actually, um, if you like, putting an end to that entirely, should they choose to But do as so. you say, the EU might be a proxy for that general feeling of frustration. Yeah, and yeah. I think we have to be very, very careful as well. I know Kevin hasn't fallen into this danger this morning, but mm. we have to be very careful of this danger of blaming the other and blaming migrants, if you like, for economic difficulties. So that's there as well. And could I also just um, mention about the point about um, migration being an ideological kind of thing. It's not. Um, part of the, the single European market, well, maybe it is in, in, in part, but 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 the, the, the core of the single European market is creating a space uh, in which um, uh, uh, persons, services, goods and capital can move freely from places where they're, they're in uh, an oversupply to a place in which there aren't enough of them. As and we know ourselves so we well. Ourselves, because we've had to migrate as well to yeah. seek jobs and that kind of thing. So a key element, in fact, of the single European market is that you have free movement of persons, free movement of workers more specifically within it. Um, and that's going to continue to be the case. And actually, interestingly enough, uh, what's going to happen is that if the United Kingdom want to maintain access to the single European market, they are going to have to continue to guarantee free movement of workers. So ironically, they're going to be now faced with the choice. Do you want to put an end to migration and fall outside the single European market? Or do you still want the single European market um, with, with migration? Kevin, you don't so know that. You don't, you don't know <coughs> what the outcome of the negotiations. You do not know what's going to happen between Britain or the United Kingdom uh, or even England and the European Union. You used to, that, that's all on the table. Everything's on the table. But now. surely common sense would prevail, Kevin. Well, I don't know what common sense actually means. People were saying both sides were citing common sense in the referendum campaign and then both sides were supporting common sense with lies. So it's very difficult to understand you know, what common sense would be. I don't know what common sense is. The opinion I had five years ago isn't the opinion I have today. But I do know that people in, in England were... And we are talking about England. And we are also mm -hmm. have to deal with the issues for, for the United Kingdom. Mm. They were sick and tired of being told what to think. Sick and tired of being told how, how to behave. Sick and tired of being told that their, those communities could be transformed by the dictates of Brussels over which they had no control. And they've said no. And I don't blame them. But, now, but Cormac just, just coming back to yes. uh, something Gavin said. He said that the EU was a soft power. And er earlier, Connor had said that one of the strengths of the Eurozone was that it had hard-minded people determined to go ahead. And I think this comes to uh, one of the problems with the EU. It is a very insecure power. It doesn't quite know what it wants to do or it wants to do more than it can do. And in Bosnia, you know, my objection to Jacques Poux was his egregious political incompetence. There for everybody to see. And I, I note you haven't criticised him, by the way. Uh, but I, I think that is shocking that when tens of thousands of lives are lost and we have somebody palpably incompetent representing us, that that passes without criticism. I think it is a scandal. Mm. I think the behaviour of a successor, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, ambling around, appearing to be drunk at EU receptions, Google it, mm. uh, public receptions, slapping people on the back, slapping them in the face, poking at their tie, pulling his own tie, shocking behaviour. And it is, you know, we have a mismatch between ambition, which is very hard, which the Greek people are feeling the really hard edge of, and softness, which says, oh, well, we don't do the messy bits. Uh, we're a soft power. We, we, we'll, we'll ring the Americans to come with their, their garbage collection trucks and do the dirty work. And I think there is a, there's a fundamental uncertainty at the heart of the minds of those promoting Europe. They, they are unsure what they want. 
and how far they should go and how fast they should go. Or is it more the case that they know exactly what they want, but their problem is dragging the people of Europe with them who don't want it? Well, that's a key problem and, and the lack of democratic legitimacy. And we see growing, we, we see support for the EU in France, according to Eurobarometer polls, 36% lower than in, in Britain. Britain. So, you know, the notion that this began as a peace project, this is a project of the French and German elites to prevent war between them by integrating the two. And Gavin was right when he said that Britain was, wasn't really a core member of the EU. At its core, this is a Franco-German project with a bunch of satellites around it. And we need to be clear about that. You know, there's too much fluffy, happy-clappy talk and, and that's nice, but it's not real. Yeah. Um, soft Connor, power is no power. That's what that means. The truth is, soft mm. power is no and, power. Uh, Connor oh, Lenehan, is the fundamental problem here, I, I've been saying recently on the programme, the two great themes running through all our topics are class and identity. And indeed, the Galway Arts Festival, their whole theme this year is identity. And this compulsion that appears to be hardwired into us to claim ourselves member of one gang, to identify the members of another gang and for rivalry between us to play out in some form or other, be it on the soccer field or a battlefield or trade wars or slagging each other off through the press. And that given that compulsion, um, the European project could never work. Well, it is a club, but my, my argument is to look at it as a club because it's not a hard power. It's not, it's not really even a soft power in that sense. It, it, it's an arrangement where people come together, cooperate, uh, come to some uh, best practice. I hate using that phrase, it so, sounds so politically correct, but you know, to try to come to some best practice arrangements whereby they can trade and interact together. And it's very much, again, a, a project in motion. It's not, it's sui generis, it's not like anything else. So I think that making the comparison with Brendan Sims, you know, the analogies with Yugoslav, Soviet Union it's, it's not real and I think we all agreed that but I, I think it now faces a very interesting challenge and, and this challenge is there and has been there for quite some time there were design flaws for instance at the very beginning of the creation of the Eurozone the lack of fiscal surveillance and this was all because the club members weren't prepared to move the full distance uh, to guarantee that that currency would be like a real currency as opposed to a a, 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 a makeshift or uh, invented for a particular purpose uh, currency those design flaws were particularly exposed during our own financial crisis and the wider global crisis uh, that accompanied our own problems here in Ireland. Just, just and, and, and those, those, by the way, have in, in large extent been corrected. Now, they're not fully corrected, but some of the design flaws are now corrected. And again, I think the immigration crisis and indeed the UK now leaving the European Union has exposed yet more uh, what I would call fault lines or design flaws at the heart of the European project, which must on, on be corrected. If, the, if they're not corrected, let, let me finish. All right, okay. If they're not corrected, it will fall apart. It will fall apart. And I think you there can was, never that there, there was fiscal surveillance uh, of Eurozone member state countries from the start. Ireland got glowing reports from that as late as March 2008. The head of the EU Commission Directorate, responsible for that report that gave us an absolutely clean bill of health, Klaus Regling was later promoted and made head of the EU bailout fund. Why? Because of his identity. Because he had previously been a top functionary in the German finance ministry. But and they're the boys who are 
you know, behind the controls right now. Oh, I, Gavin Barr. We can get into conspiracy theories in relation to this. But what about identity? What about identity? That is a recitation of fact, Gavin. The problem of Ireland, like getting getting clean bills of health, like we had a finance minister who was saying if we have it, spend it at the time. We didn't get into problems in relation to the the debt and deficit problems because until we actually got into an economic crisis, we weren't actually in breach of those particular rules. So, you know, and the fact, I mean, Klaus Regling, what's that got to do with that? No, well, it, what's, what's it, what's it the, got the to do reason, with The it? reason, Gavin, is I've sat here for 42 minutes. I haven't heard you utter a smidgen of criticism of anybody in the EU over that time. And this is what I, I, I resent. It's, it's the robotic Stepford wife uh, response we get from champions of the EU time in, time out. And it is this resistance to open debate, which involves give and take, not just take, take, take. Well, you know, um, uh, Cormac, I respect the integrity of your views and I hope you would respect the integrity of mine and I, I don't appreciate the last uh, comment. Right, but Gavin, yeah, but do you accept here, I, I d- that the I, EU should be criticised? Of course I accept that the EU should For be criticised. But fairly in relation to it. Um, well, I suppose, uh, uh, you know, uh, Connor has, has produced what I thought was a very legitimate criticism um, in relation to the European Union that the um, the measures of budgetary discipline which existed before the crisis, um, you know, weren't actually adequately strong um, and that is something that has been addressed now or has been partially addressed at the moment and the whole question of democratic answerability um, obviously is something that does need to be um, addressed properly as well I mean they raised properly as well Cormac and Kevin issues uh, about um, you know the military capacity of the European Union maybe that's something that you know it's lack of capacity in that regard maybe that's something that needs to be looked at as well so there are various reasons to to criticise the European Union but you know I I don't think it's particularly happening with due respect for the integrity of your views like criticising like uh, Jean-Claude Juncker because he may have an alcohol problem. Uh, you know, I, I, that's Sorry, not really why I'm not. in here that's this morning. The criticisms of Yonker are not based on alcohol. That was p- one part of what uh, Cormac was saying. I criticise Juncker, and Juncker is widely reviled across Europe for his his dictatorial manner, for his abusive manner, the way this morning he he spoke about in a very aggressive way. There is no friendship there in the way he conducts his relationship. He is an ideologue. He belongs to the Soviet Union. He 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 does not belong to a a system of assent and democracy. And because he belongs to but this kind of non-responsive elite. He is answerable for for for, for the, the terrible crisis that Europe is in now. He is partly responsible. Could, could and and it's not it's wrong it's to, to to point out that you you have been an apologist for the EU, which is regrettable because you've got a far better mind than than um, than that. And it would be nice for you to have conceded. Um, that the EU had been seriously at fault before you were asked to do. But, but, but I think I've already I'll let Gavin come that. back. I think yeah. I've already answered that particular criticism. I've been asked um, uh, you know, to, to identify areas where the European Union can be criticised and I've done that and I reject the labelling of my being an ideologue. Just one point about Jean-Claude Juncker as well. Jean-Claude Juncker was uh, if he's reviled all over Europe, it's extremely curious then that he was elected uh, by um, the European Parliament to the position that he now holds because the President of the European Commission is elected uh, by the majority of European Parliament uh, uh, members and he is that that is the simple historical fact in this regard so if he's reviled I don't know how he actually managed to get himself elected to the position he's in today and I have to take a break there I'd be in trouble but we'll be back after this Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108
And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about Brexit this morning in studio. Cormac Lucy, Kevin Myers, Gavin Barrett and Connor Lenehan and some of your many texts. Everyone's interested in this subject. Fan texts first for Cormac. Thank you, Cormac, says Mary and Kerry. And another Mary is um, saying that Kevin Myers is a breath of fresh air. He talks so much common sense. Now, another Sarah says, or maybe it's just referring to me, will Irish students continue to have access to education in the UK? Does anyone on your panel have the answer for this? Look, we, they didn't leave the UK or the EU yet. So I guess there's about two years to work out all that stuff. And I'm sure well, they will work well, something well, out. Well, Connor Lennon. Well, I think, I think it would be most wrong for people to take the view, certainly in Ireland particularly, to take the view that this should be all sorted in two years. I think we yeah. need to sort this out rather more quickly because we have preceding agreements with the Britain in relation to free movement, free movement of goods and services. And, and we need to move very quickly to preserve those because it, it could be the case, notwithstanding what it's been said here and certainly in relation to Mr Junker that they will want to do something quite different to what's in Ireland's interest and it's very much in Ireland's interest to preserve the arrangements that predated our membership I, I understand Union. they're gone in terms of in ter- I understand they're gone yeah, well, well no just let me finish this either preserve or have them resumed uh, on an almost automatic basis because it's very very important that the relationship between Britain and Ireland as as a was the case before the European Union is actually continued and this, this is hugely important and it addresses what your your caller or texter is, is saying that we have a very historic cultural political historic otherwise relationship with, with, with the UK and we need now to lock in the relationship as it was and hopefully will continue to I, be. I agree with and, your and objective, and I think Connor. The only danger, of course, is that people will say if we have this open uh, trading relationship with the UK that people might try to engineer a situation where uh, goods and services and people are re-exported into the European Union. I, I think one can build protections around that but I think it's very important it's actually Connor. done very quickly. Yeah. I was on your programme about a month ago and I asked your researcher to check with Foreign Affairs what was the legal status of the free travel area that dated back to 1922-23 and the answer they got back was that it had now lapsed and had been fully replaced by EU arrangements so that if the EU arrangements were to fall there was nothing left to revert to. Yeah, right. but and, and, and the difficulty that's is if we right. want to negotiate fresh arrangements that falls under the ambit of the single market that that would have to be done by the EU we, we wouldn't I'm, I don't mm. think we would have the independent competence now uh, to do that well, that's w- a very good it's a very good do reason not for it to be in the EU up to the n- nostrils as we are if we cannot so negotiate so we should leave that's too that's we, just let me finish true. the sentence no. let me finish the sentence yeah. the only land border the United Kingdom has is with us the only land border we have is with the United Kingdom that we cannot discuss uh, th- that border independently of Europe is, is absurd. Okay, we've only a but few but minutes key left. Point here okay, is I'm making okay. the point that this is an absolute priority. Yeah. It's actually the first it is, it is, priority no for Ireland that. and our, our governing classes, mm-hmm. elites, whatever you want to call them, to address in the next few weeks. Yep. I don't mm-hmm. talk about months. Yep. That this must be put at the very heart of the European discussion what happens here, but it must be put at the very heart because there are Irish people living in England whose status will not be clear because they are not citizens of the UK, but they have the right to, to remain and stay there. And, and this is a huge, huge issue for people. Well, so is people. the border an issue. The, yeah. the border becomes an issue. Yeah, the trade across the border I want to issue. get back to really the heart of what I think is, is the issue, which is identity. And in this case, nationalism. And Gavin, you know, I bought in for a very long time and probably still do to your noble view of mm. the European Union and, and what it was trying to achieve. And as a woman, mm. particularly, I have received so many benefits from it. But um, 
does the, this facet of the human condition to identify in a particular club, in this case nationalism, mean that it could never work and breakup must be the inevitable result because we're just too different? Um, okay, a, a great question. But just before I address that, just to go back <laughs> to the common, the common travel area uh, thing, it is not governed by European law. It's actually, there's an exemption under European Union law. It's written into the Schengen Protocol, so it's still governed uh, by, by Irish law at the ah, end of the okay. day. And that will continue to be the case, I have no doubt, under any settlement that's negotiated. Great. In relation to the identity thing, the biggest challenge that exists for Europe, as Connor identified, many of the solutions for Europe, um, or for the world, I beg your pardon, are global in nature, they're supranational in nature, and yet the loyalty of people has tended to remain with the state. And that is probably the biggest challenge that the European Union I'm going to read out a few more texts and then I'll give you each a very last word. Michael says UK uh, Brexit low medium paid workers and their extended families are justified and sick of unfair wage race to the bottom and massive drain on social services and the NHS. Of course business and elite of London support local wages. Someone else says can you please ask the panel about the view that the EU is run for business and has no idea what the people want. And Miles and Galway say Britain has done us a great favour by reopening serious and earnest debate about defence, responsibility, identity and ideology such as you are now conducting on your programme and Brian and Limerick says thanks News Talk it's the best debate I've heard on Brexit yet hooray uh, Cormac have you a final <laughs> point you want to get in on quickly uh, well just I agree with Connor. the quicker that Britain negotiates its exit the better just from the point of view of limiting the uncertainty uh, but there's an awful lot of administrative detailed work to be done in doing that uh, and I'm not quite sure that the political goodwill is there at European level to allow that happen smoothly. And that uncertainty poses a particular threat to us as no other EU member state is as exposed to Britain as we are. OK, and that would be the final note. Sorry to the others who I'm sure wanted to get in today. Bobby Kerr is up next and he'll be talking about the impact on businesses today of the Brexit vote and collapsed in sterling. Relevant if you're being paid in sterling or buying British goods. Bad for one, good for the other. So thanks to all my guests who got up early on this Saturday morning and came in. Eva Breen produced, Marion Kennedy was on sound and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.